there is so much here. So, so, so the verses we're going to be in uh, this morning are Mark 1, uh, 14 and 15. And, and the reason that there's so much uh, just packed in these two verses is because Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and verse 15 actually serve as a synopsis of the entire book, the entire gospel of Mark. Uh, if, if you want to know what the book of Mark is about uh, and you want to see it in its entirety, you can do that in these two verses that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, and so <laughs> I've kind of set myself up for that. So here we go. We're going to try to talk uh, and I'm going to try to break down uh, the, the significant meaning of those. So uh, you can read ahead. It's only two verses, but I encourage you just to follow along with us. So uh, it begins. So verse 14, chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison. Okay, stop there. Uh, what, what, other, what other words do you have there? Arrested. That's, that's a pretty common one. Uh, so, let, I love getting nerdy. You get to see my nerd side now. So, uh, does anybody have any other word there? Any other kind of phrase there besides arrested? Uh, the NIV, the one I'm reading from, says put in prison, that, which is the worst translation of it. Um, arrested is a little bit better. Did you have another one? Anybody have something else? Anybody have handed over? Taken into custody? Okay, that could also be okay. Um, uh, the best translation uh, is handed, sorry, I don't usually do uh, all caps, but I'm trying so you can read. So the best translation is handed over. Um, it's true in, in Greek, uh, old Greek papyri, that this word, which is, so the Greek word uh, used here, is this word right here. Uh, anybody want to try to pronounce it? Uh, anybody want to try? Paradidomy. Yeah, Darian got it. So that, that's paradidomy. Uh, it's true that in, in Greek, Greek inscriptions that paradidomy is often used for the word arrested, but uh, it's not always, um, which is significant. So why is that significant? Why, why waste our time on if he was arrested or not? So Mark never says that John was actually arrested. He said he was handed over. Yes, it, it can mean arrested, but the reason that that's important is not because of the meaning of the word, but the, the parallels of where this word is going to be used other places in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so, so obviously it's used right here. And who is this in reference to? I'm hearing some people whisper it. Yeah, John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist is going to be is going to be handed over to uh, the authorities, and we're going to talk a little bit more about John other places. But this word, handed over, paradidomy, is is used in other places uh, other places as well. It's used for, uh, in fact, it's used for Jesus that the Son of Man is going to be handed over. Uh, and you can find those in chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse 33, uh, and about eight other places uh, in chapters 14 and 15. Uh, that same word, paradidomy, uh, used for John the Baptist and also used for the Son of Man. Now, here is 
uh, that it's used one other place in association with one other group of people, and this is, this is just where it gets cool. Uh, it is also used for Christians, for Christian believers, for followers of Jesus. So you can find that in 1421. So the same word, right? Uh, Mark is gonna is gonna use echoes of the same word. He's gonna he's gonna associate the same word with what is gonna happen not only to John the Baptist, not only to the Son of Man, but to Christians, to believers, to followers of Jesus, which is actually us as well. So as we're reading this, uh, handing over this word paradidomy, it combines not only the adversities to which the faithful are subjected but also the superintending will of God that is operative through all of these people. And John the Baptist, he serves as the, as the forerunner of Jesus. That's how we understand, right, John the Baptist. Um, one, one language that uh, Tracy uses, in fact, uh, Mark uses it at the beginning, uh, beginning of his gospel, is, is that John is preparing a highway that Jesus is going to walk on. You, you remember Tracy has that picture of the highway, Right, like, like this aisle, this nice clean aisle that I could just walk down any time, right? It's prepared for me so that when Jesus comes onto the scene, he has something to walk on, right? So John the Baptist is not just going to set to be a forerunner to Jesus in his messaging, but in his very life as well. Have you considered that? That John the Baptist is not just preparing people verbally or mentally for Jesus, but through his very life. He's preparing people. In the same way that John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus is also going to be arrested in our story. And in the same way that John the Baptist is going to die for his beliefs, Jesus is also going to die for what he believes. And if you keep going with the pattern, what does that leave us? Uh, and and that's, that is the depth of how he opens this book, is, is Christians are reading this. Believers of Jesus are reading this. Mark is writing to people who are most likely being persecuted in the mid-60s under Nero, who are feeling this persecution, who, who very well are being arrested for their beliefs, and he's, he's connecting them. He says, well, being a follower of Jesus... <laughs> um, Intentionally, okay, so sorry, the arrest of John and the, and the way he begins this is intentionally correlated to show that the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and suffering, not in ease and comfort, right? From the very beginning, Mark makes this claim that this is the life that we're to be expecting. This is the fate of John the Baptist, of Jesus himself, and yes, of disciples of Jesus. So that's paradidomy. Let's do a different word. I'll get a different color for y'all. Red or blue? Blue. Darian said blue. Okay. The wife says blue, you go with blue. Uh, so the next word that we're going to break down, we're going to break down three words here before we move forward. So the next word is, um, so John was put in prison, got that, and Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the what? I heard gospel, the good news. Any others? That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Okay. Um, I like good news. 
personally, uh, because that's exactly what it is. Um, we get confused on this word, that's unfortunate, because by good, we think it means, uh, uh, n- yeah, not bad, that's good. Uh, it, means, it means painless, like we think good always means painless, but good can sometimes mean pain, right? And we're actually going to talk about that in the sermon, so I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, but I like good news, because that's, that's what it is, in fact. So this word, a little bit harder, maybe, to pronounce, but one that uh, might be a little more familiar to you. I'm going to make sure I spell it right. I don't do... I'm a, I, I studied Hebrew. I didn't study uh, Greek. And that is my excuse. So, anyways, uh, anybody want to try on this one? Euagelian is how I, is how I pronounce it. Euagelian, uh, which, which is everywhere you see gospel, everywhere you see good news, it is this word. Um, now... I love this word because we like to associate a lot of things with it, but early Christians, there's a lot of association with this word. There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of depth to this word about what it means. So when we think of the gospel, which is in essence what this is, uh, when we think of the gospel, there are, there, there's two primary things. This is the teachings of Jesus. So this, this, when you think of the gospel, the good news, this is what Jesus came proclaiming, right? This is his message. When G, any, any town that Jesus walked into, right, and, and he gave a, a sermon on the mount kind of sermon, or he gave a lesson, or we would consider that good news, wouldn't we? If it comes from the mouth of, of our Savior, of our Messiah, we consider that good news. Whatever Jesus says, that's good news to us. We want to hold on to it. We want to latch to that. That is good news. So the gospel is the teachings of Jesus, but from the very beginning, early Christians had a different meaning for gospel as well. It wasn't just the teachings of Jesus. Uh, How do I put this? Uh, I'll just do it this way. But it was also about Jesus. It was about what Jesus was doing. The story of who Jesus is, that is also good news, right? And there's a difference between these, right? There's, there's a difference between what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. They're very closely connected, but we use gospel, we use that good news to tie both of these together. And that derives, so this is a nice, fun math problem that uses words. Uh, that derives the, the, third, the third rendition of, of this word. Um, so it's not just the teachings of Jesus, it's not just the teachings about Jesus, but you add these together, the good news was in fact Jesus, right? It's not just his, what, it's not just what he said, it's not just what he did, but the good news, the gospel was in its very essence, Jesus himself, right? That is what the good news is. That is, that is what people want to, or that's what, um, that's what early Christians believed, and that's what, that's what the gospel writers want you to see, and we're going to see that in these phrases that we're about to break down in, in verse 15, right? The good news is not just the things that Jesus said, it's not just the things Jesus did, but these terms are inseparable. You cannot take just one of them. Jesus, in his very essence, is the good news, uh, so Jesus went around Galilee 
proclaiming the good news. So let's break down that last, that last word. Uh, what other, so I said proclaiming. What else, what other words are used there? Preaching. Any others besides proclaiming and preaching? Okay, so that's, that's pretty good. This is, the last, this is the last Greek lesson, I promise, and then we'll, we'll move forward to the, the juicy stuff. Um, so, so this word, oh, oh, sorry. I love this word because it has a cool little dash over the E. I feel all cool whenever I write it. Anybody want to try on that one? It is a K, sorry. That's a very sloppy K. Anybody? Carison. It's just Carison. Um, pretty, pretty straightforward. So, Carison is significant, uh, the, the proclaiming, because not only the, is there a repetition, look at John chapter 1, verse 4. What does it say? John chapter 1, verse 4. I think that's the right one. Yeah, who is proclaiming? Okay, John the Baptist was proclaiming. So there's that repetition, that echo, connecting John and Jesus, right? So not only does, does this word already have a repetition, and if you want to know uh, a little nugget about really the Bible in itself, but especially these guys were literary geniuses, right? They, they're very, there's not really accidents in here, right? If it seems like a coincidence, it's not, <laughs> Right? Uh, they, they do these things on purpose. They're trying, to, they're trying to pull you back to something else. So the fact that Mark uses this word twice in the opening of his, of his gospel, he's trying to do something. Um, but the significance of this word is not just the repetition connecting John and, son, and the Son of Man, Jesus, but is, it has deep-rooted uh, meaning and significance that pulls us all the way back to the Old Testament. I know, surprise. I know if you're sitting in any Tracy classes... He's going to pull you back into the Old Testament. But that's what these guys know, right? And, and that's what they believe. That is their Bible. Uh, and they're trying to connect these obviously larger-than-life moments um, to what they believe. Uh, and so they use subtle things like this word. So where is the significance of this word? In the Old Testament, uh, it's not used very much, believe it or not. Not in the Old Testament prophets. They don't use it very often. Two places where it is used uh, is Isaiah, that is an ISA, 60, 61, make sure I get it right, 61.1, and Joel 2.1, yep. Uh, and yeah, we're going to go back and read those. So I'm not, you don't have to, I'll, I'll do the hard lifting for you. I tabbed it, so I can just flip right to it. Uh, but whenever, whenever I read these, I'm going to read these two. Um, it's where this, this word, uh, obviously not in Greek, but where this same meaning, derived meaning of this word, is going to be used. Um, these, are two, these are two places. And I want you to hear, I want you to listen to these, to these two places and see the similarities and how it's going to draw you back to Mark. Because it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna play a, a reflection game on you. So let's go Isaiah sixty-one one first. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for prisoners. Ooh, so good. Love it. Yeah, so uh, some, there's, some, there's some similarities. Uh, obviously, proclaiming the good news, uh, what Jesus is going to be doing uh, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. And I honestly, I'm just reading this now. I don't know if it's coincidence, but like I said earlier, uh, to release from darkness for the prisoners. Where I mean, aren't we just now learning about somebody who was arrested, who became a prisoner? Uh, so, yeah, significant. Uh, so now let's go over, I don't know if y'all enjoy this kind of thing. Tracy and I, we nerd out on this kind of stuff like literally all day. So I don't know if you get excited, but I do. So, And I have the mic. Okay, we're going to go to Joel chapter 2. Uh, verse 1. So again, uh, I love this uh, because of what's going to be coming up. Uh, so Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. That's, that's where this word, I had to do a little digger, a little digging on that one, but that's the same phrase. So sound the alarm on the holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Okay. It is close at hand. Where have we heard that phrase? Well, if you go to Mark chapter 1, go back to our verses, we're going to jump into verse 15. The time has come, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So you can see the, the connections that, that Mark is making to the, to, and these are, esch, uh, sorry, these are, uh, these are verses that are proclaiming God's reign, the arrival of, of God's reign on earth, right? They're proclaiming uh, there's going to come a time when the Lord, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, when Ezekiel's bloom coming out of the stump, when that is going to be fulfilled, and as he's making, as Mark is making this connection, <laughs> I love this, as Mark is making this connection to the readers, John's put in prison, Jesus went around proclaiming, this is good news. As John is, is drawing these people back to this, this ancient thought that there's going to come a savior, a messiah, the very next thing comes from Jesus' mouth, says the time has come here. That moment that you've been waiting for, it's here. The time has come. So we're going we're gonna to break down. Are we going to go on time? I cannot see that back there. Oh, nine, oh 922. Whew, we got time. We got time, folks. Okay, so let's jump into uh, verse 15. Uh, and again, synopsis, uh, verse 14, 15, a synopsis of the entire gospel of Mark, verse 14, provides the historical setting for us. Uh, when is this happening? What is happening? How is it connected to the larger story here? And verse 15 is providing us its interpretation. Okay, now here is how these things are going to come into fruition. Uh, and Mark has an amazing ability to summarize the entirety of Jesus' life and teaching into a single concept. I'm about to erase some of this. Y'all good with that? Okay. 
So, all of this that we have been talking about, uh, Mark has a way to uh, summarize all of it into a single phrase. Any guess what I'm about to write up on this board? What, what phrase does he use to capture the essence of what Jesus is? What has come? Kingdom of God. Oh, there it is. Kingdom of God. Uh-oh. Just got it. Okay. I don't know if you can read that. Okay, you get it, though. The kingdom of God. Everything is always is all captured in this one phrase. So let's let's talk a little bit about that phrase. <clears throat> the kingdom of God takes its initial shape in Israel's concept of God as king. And we've seen that concept. Where's my drink? I'm gonna get a drink real quick. Hold on. <clears throat> and we we've seen Israel's concept of God as king in, in multiple places throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 15, 18, 1 Samuel 12, 12, Psalm 5, 2, um, all has that language, God as king. Uh, he's the creator of the world. He is God exalted over all the creatures. He rules in majestic splendor. He mocks God of wood and stone. He brings kingdom to naught. Uh, and the reign of God was initially manifested in Israel's history and exodus from Egypt and the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. That was a really thick sentence, so let me break that down a little bit. Uh, the reign of God, it, it saw its shape. It, it, it formed. Uh, it, it, it began to be molded into shape from the Torah, which was given from God on the Mount of Sinai. So as you read through the Torah, you begin to catch shape of what the kingdom of God looks like, what, what, what God's reign over earth looks like. However, it would be supremely manifested. It would find its completion in the advent of a future Messiah. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are, there are signs pointing to this Lord, this Messiah, the Savior that's going to come, the new Adam, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 that's going to be exalted to a throne next to God, to the bloom coming out of the stump, according to Ezekiel. You have these, these signposts pointing that the reign of God is here, but it's going to be fully manifested and God's reign is going to be ushered in eternally and completely upon the arrival of this Messiah that we've been waiting for. And Jesus, he affirms all this. Right? He, he affirms this, this idea of what the reign of God looks like. However, this is where it gets tricky and a little sticky, so stick with me. Uh, he parted ways from conceptions of the kingdom that were held by many contemporaries. And we're, we're going to hope I don't step on any toes. So if I do, call me on Monday, I guess. Okay, so there is a, there is a pretty hard uh, line in the sand. This black is not, not working anymore, so hold on. 
What? True. Uh, there's a pretty hard line in the sand uh, in ancient Israel thought of the righteous and the what? The unrighteous. Yeah. There's a pretty, there's a pretty hard line between those two. Uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they use uh, the phrase son of light. Can you guess what the other one is? Son of darkness. Yep. Um, and the righteous uh, would take the yoke of the Torah, so they would obey the Torah. And the unrighteous would disobey. Yeah. You are getting this. It's eerily similar, isn't it? Um, and what would happen? What would happen to the righteous who, who uh, took upon themselves the yoke of the Torah, who obeyed it, whereas the unrighteous didn't? What would happen to the righteous? Well, they were expected to be rewarded, right? Something is going to happen. You will be rewarded. You will take part in something that's going to happen. Um, but something is going to happen before you're rewarded, uh, and God is going to destroy those who do not obey. Uh, and according to the prevailing view, the kingdom ultimately depended on God, but its arrival was predicted, or predicated, I'm sorry, but the arrival was predicated on the prerequisites of human righteousness and obedience, which might be thought of as matching funds to the bargain. If you can fit inside of this column, doing a-okay. Uh, if you fit on this side of the column, you need to work some things out. Uh, now, here's the part where you start lighting your torches and taking me out. So, uh, and again, I'm, I'm just trying to present as Mark is about to present it to us, okay? I'm just trying to be honest with the text. So, bear with me as I kind of work through this. But this, this looks similar to something that we hold to our hearts, um, so, so imagine uh, we are here on our lovely earth, um, a beautiful world um, that has also um, been distorted by wickedness. It's beautiful and can be terrible all at once. It's called good, but it's filled with sin, uh, and we live within this reality. And on, on our lovely earth, you have me and you and all of us. We all live here. And what we're trying to do is live a, a good enough life um, to live above the line in our righteousness, um, you know, to, to obey the rules um, and to stay above until God will eventually uh, close the curtain on time. Uh, and he's going to separate us. Uh, he's going to separate us into... Uh, clouds and wings and trumpets sounding, uh, that heavenly place, or uh, he's going to categorize us and put us in that other place, this seemingly very hot and uh, torture chamber or however, uh, however you interpret it. And we live our faith, the way this is manifested throughout our life is we try to live above the line, don't we? If, if, I can just, if I can just keep myself above this line until that time comes, 
I will be put in the right place. I'm going to be categorized in the right place. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with this, and the, the way we understand this. And it's the same problem that, that Jesus is going to identify with this one. Is that the main factor is me. How I can live above the line that's going to put me in the right place. And, and Jesus, or, or really Mark, introduces the kingdom of God in a different way. That the kingdom of God is not a result of human efforts. Right? Nor, uh, and, and humans, they can't earn the kingdom of God. You can't, you can't earn your way into the kingdom of God, but you can accept it. Verse 15, the kingdom has come, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has, or the time has come, I'm sorry. The time has come. That moment is happening now, Jesus says. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I, I want to I just for a second, I want to focus on one word there, and it's that word near or at hand. Uh, that is, so the Greek translation of that, it's not a, uh, it's not a temporal nearness. It's not like it's near, like it's close to my heart or my mind. Uh, that, that Greek word there is spatial. So like this marker is near to me. Now it's near to Darien. Now it's near to Victoria. It's spatial. So as, as Jesus says this, these words, he says the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. That the kingdom of God that's half erased here, <laughs> that, that the kingdom of God is not somewhere we are going. The kingdom of God has come to us. He is near. He is here. He is speaking to you. You can see him front of you. Uh, woo! Okay, that was a lot. Um, so the time has come. Let's, let's spend a second on the time. Uh, speaking of time, we're, we're doing good. We got, we got a little bit of time to finish this out. Uh, the time has come. The announcement of the kingdom at Jesus, uh, the announcement of the kingdom at Jesus's debut in Galilee uh, is, is presented in Mark as a definitive moment. I mean, that's how we should understand that word, uh, time has come. Uh, the Greek word there is kairos, which maybe you've heard that word. Uh, and it is not a progressive time. So it's not uh, the time has come like uh, we're in it right now. We are in uh, a certain time of history, right? It's not saying that we have entered into a moment of time. It's saying uh, kairos is a definitive moment. It's, it's like now. So right now, the time is 9.35. It's that time. That's its, that's its kairos. That's our kairos. And that's where we get the word clock from and time and all that, that cool stuff. Um, and I say all that to say that God has brought the time of prophecy, as has been represented, um, as we've talked about, to a final phase of history. 
Jesus comes not hustling in, not coming to sell a kingdom. Rather, and I love this, rather he has submitted himself, Jesus has submitted himself patiently to the divine timing and waited for the right moment, a long prepare for moment in which he would be heralded. Jesus has submitted himself to a time in history that, that has been designated in that time that we have been waiting for. That time has come. It is here now. And he declares it in his very first words in the Gospel of Mark. That time has come. Maybe I'm being repetitive here. Um, but I, I think that's important. And it, it, it connects to everything we've been, we've been talking about here. And that time... That, that moment, it demands a change in thinking. It demands some kind of reaction to it, right? And, and, and we're going to see that, right? Uh, the gospel, it requires a response. What, what is that response that Jesus calls us into here? What does it say? I'm going to take my drink of my tea. What does it say? Repent and believe. The good news that you just heard. What, what's the good news? The kingdom of God is here. That is good news. And we're going to talk, talk about why that's good news in the sermon. So, again, no spoilers. That's the good news. But how you respond to it is up to you. Remember, you can't earn your way into the kingdom. You can only accept it or you can only reject it. And Jesus has called us to respond by repentance and by belief. Repentance is what? A turning away from something, right? Yeah, it, it, it literally means you're walking one direction, you stop walking that direction, and what do you do? Turn around, and you begin walking the other direction. Now, that, that sounds elementary, and I'm, I might be a little bit goofy uh, up here demonstrating that to you, but oftentimes, we look as repentance as a diversion on a path versus a turning around of lifestyle. So versus me literally turning 180 and going the opposite direction, instead of going right, I'm going to go left, right? My repentance is instead of going this way, I'm just going just gonna to adjust a little bit and walk. And this often gets us in trouble, does it not? Right? I'm, I'm not going, I know I struggle with alcoholism, but I'm not going to drink unless, I, uh, unless I'm just with my friends. Or... Uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of any other example, but you can see where this manifests in its life, in, in our life, right? It, we, we, we try to divert just a little bit, make small adjustment versus what, what, what Jesus has called us into is literally a turning away from the direction we are headed. What direction are you headed? But it's a two-part so you turn away from something, but what are you turning towards? And that is the second part of Jesus' call to us. Repentance is a turning away from something, and belief is the response of what we are turning towards instead. Uh, and the sequence of terms, repent and believe, suggests that belief presupposes repentance and depends on it. To believe 
in something, to turn towards something, you have to turn away from something else. That's just physics. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's just reality. We know that. We understand that. But when it comes to our lives, we somehow we miss that part. Uh, and then I, I'm going to end it basically here. So let me read it one more time in its completion. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 15. After John was put in prison, after John was handed over, let me say, I do not like that translation. Uh, As he was handed over, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe that good news. So Mark, he frames the introductory summary, verse 14 and 15, the synopsis of the entire gospel. He actually frames it using an Old Testament schema, using an Old Testament uh, framework. Uh, And that framework is pretty simple. Uh, You set up a divine blessing and you establish the human obligation to that divine blessing. That's, that's the Old Testament kind of structure, the framework. And Mark uses that and places, places the story of Jesus within it. The divine blessing, it's present, right? It's the kingdom of God. And the human obligation is contained in two simple imperatives, repent and believe. Uh, yeah, and then, and then you go into, I'm supposed to have actually verse through verses 20, so the call of his first disciple, but um, I'm, I'm, there's nothing I can really add. Uh, Jesus comes upon some guys that are throwing nets into a water, pretty straightforward. Uh, he says, follow me, and I will make you, I'll send you out to fish for people. I'll make you fishers of men, uh, and that calling is to all of us. Now that we have come face to face with the kingdom of God, he's, he's, he's staring us in the face, as he was staring these fishermen in, in the face, you have to decide how you respond to it. Do you follow him or do you not? Do you turn away from something? See, now we're going to start, we're seeing it in action. Do you turn away from something, your lifestyle, people in your life, your comfort, your home and family and everything you've ever known? Do you turn away from something to turn towards something else, our Savior and our Messiah?